appreciate that very much. Uh, Bill, Teresa, where are you? you want to stand again? These are the Fawn Millers. They're going to be speaking this evening. He's going to be preaching the Word and sharing their ministry. They've been in Puerto Rico, and now they're doing his uh, church planting here in the Hispanic community, so they're going to be sharing with us this evening. Thank you so much. People get an opportunity to welcome you this morning and then this evening especially. Uh, this evening we're also having communion service that's going to be taking place, and let me remind you, uh, I mentioned meeting that's at 6 o'clock for those that are interested in that one possibility of a trip, a uh, missions trip this summer. Uh, there's also our REACH meeting. That is our outreach opportunities that's happening at 6 o'clock in the North Hall on a time for you to just get together to be able to talk about and share and talk and pray about those individuals that you want to see born again. So those are some things happening this evening. This morning, let's take our Bibles and let's do our Bible study. We're headed to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, if you've not been with us, we've been going through a series on the book of Judges and we've continued it with the idea that we're talking about another judge. His story is told starting to wrap up the whole set of Judges, but we're talking about Samuel, whose story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 3 this morning. We're going to be referring to chapters 1 and 2, but then focusing mostly on chapter 3. I would like to, this morning, focus in at the beginning of the message with just some illustrations of different young people that God used in a fabulous way in our culture, in our world. That is, even like these young men, they're called the Greensboro Four. There was three teenagers and one who was 20 years old, and this is all the way back in 1960. They were the beginning of the civil rights movement. These four guys decided that they were going to, um, without violence, they were going to protest what was happening in America at that time. So they went into a Woolworth store that had a uh, cafe, and they protested by sitting there and asking for service. But it was a whites-only counter. And so they were refused service. They remained there throughout the rest of that day. They didn't budge. They didn't move. They just sat there. They came back the next day, and they said that we would like service. They were told, you can't be served because you're black. They sat there that whole day, and then on the third day, others joined them till the fourth day there was 300 students that had gathered there and they formed what was called the Students' Nonviolent Coordinating Committee that put together a lot of those different protest marches and put together that national rally that took place on the uh, grounds down in Washington, D.C., where in three years after this that they had the famous speech, I Had a Dream. These four young men were the beginning of that whole thing. Let me tell you a story just briefly about another gal that probably you've heard about. She grew up in that area where the Taliban was in charge, and she was told now that she reached the ripe old age of 10 years of age, she can't be getting any education anymore. Ladies do not deserve to be educated beyond 10 years of age. She started protesting, and she used her blog, and it was picked up by the British Broadcasting Company and started being broadcasted around the world, and she became famous for her 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 informing the outside world what was happening to the ladies and the ladies' rights. And her family was forced out of the area. Uh, the Taliban were defeated, but they came back into the area. One day she was attacked on a bus, and you probably knew that, that she was shot, and uh, then her family had to flee the country. But she continued to blog about, even as a teenager, about the rights of individuals, the ladies' rights, there in that region. She's the youngest recipient of what we call the Nobel Peace Prize. She received it at age 17 because of the impact that she had upon her culture and making and bringing some change to her culture. This young man, he received an award. He's uh, the youngest one to have received this prize. And uh, the reason he received it is he's down in Baltimore, Maryland. At age 16, he had a family friend that died of pancreatic cancer. He thought, surely there's got to be some way to find out how to diagnose it earlier. 
And so he started doing his own research, and he enjoyed science. And then he contacted a hospital in the region that said, yes, we'll work with you, this doctor at John Hopkins University. And together, they put together a method that is 92% accurate of finding and diagnosing possibility of pancreatic cancer just by early stages. And so he received this reward at age 16, coming up with that. Here's a young man that grew up in Sierra Leone, uh, a war devastated. So it was just a terrible, terrible area. Grew up in a region where they would frequently attack the other individuals, cut off people's, literally cut off legs and arms and things of that. And he lived with his single mom. And uh, he had a propensity for doing things with his hands. And so he knew that power was an issue. So he decided to create his own battery. What he put together at age 13 was he went into the junkyard nearby. He got together acid, soda, metal in a tin cup. And then he put together this whole, this compound, and when it dried out, he put the, the wires around it and formed his own battery. And then from there, he developed his own little generator system and uh, saved this neighborhood, all of a sudden started to get electricity at great financial savings. And so what he did is he continued to work with these types of things with his own hands. And when he was 14 years old, he put together his own radio station right there in that community to be able to put things, you know, broadcast. And he employed some of his friends and some of the parents around there. And at age uh, 14, he comes to the United States for the first time. He went farther than 10 miles from his home, home to receive an, a re, an award from MIT because of his technical skills. Here's another young person that uh, made some contributions. Her name is, is uh, Miss Crimmins. She's from the region of Chesapeake, Virginia. And when she was just six years old, she saw photos of police working with the police dogs. And she was a pet lover, so she decided that the police dogs, as well as the police, should have the vests. So she started this campaign to be able to provide vests. She said, I'm going to raise the $700 needed to provide some of the animals the vest." And so she sold off all of her toys. She must have had quite a stash. Uh, sold off the toys, and and then it caught on, and some of the other kids in the neighborhood got involved in some of the families, and so far they've provided some seven different vests for police officers and for some of the canines that are involved with it. Here's a young man who's um, living in the area of Austria, Australia, and he saw that the local hospitals, there was a kid's ward. And so he decided at nine years of age, he wanted to get Christmas gifts for all the kids in the kid's ward at the hospital to encourage them. His mom said, we can't afford it since they come from a family that has uh, a large family of nine children. He was the youngest. The family couldn't afford, you know, providing all the gifts. So he said, can I make some? So he decided, using his mom's sewing machine, to make this different type of teddy bear. And so he got other people involved in doing it. Now he's 13 years of age, and he's got this quote-unquote teddy bear thing that they are, uh, they are providing teddy bears as encouragement around the world to different hospitals. He's done 1,400 by hand. And this year, he started auctioning them off online to raise money to send families with children with uh, deadly diseases, you know, terminal, terminal diseases, and what he calls kindness cruises. 
and he's continuing to do that type of thing for other individuals. Here's a young gal. She visited her grandmother at a local rest home in New Jersey, and she saw that there was lonely people. And she decided that what she could do is get a few of her friends together, and they could do music to, uh, music for these elderly people in the rest homes. So now that she's age 13, she has girls that go with her from ages 6 to 13. They have a repertoire of 90 Broadway songs and pop songs. They've done 20 different locales, and she says, I just like to brighten up people's days, help them to have fun, some fun, and it's worth it all by just the smile on their faces. Here's an individual. This young gal whose brother had gone to Jordan, she saw pictures of some of the children, the orphans there, uh, who were living on dirt floor, and so Charlie decided that they should have a blanket. So she uh, got together with a couple of friends, and they went and got these kits of making blankets. And so they started making a few blankets, and they shipped them. They had a group of 50 of these, her classmates, and uh, got together, and they did 50 of them. They shipped them over to Jordan, and the orphanage sent her back pictures of the kids with the blankets, and she said she was just absolutely amazed that I had made a blanket and now it's helping someone. So she, with the help of her dad, put together this club that's making blankets, and now they have sent over 700 blankets to nine different nations in the past year just through this kid coming up with this idea. Here's a young gal who liked to run marathons with her family, and she decided, she thought that, you know, we could raise some funds for peoples in needs by getting donors, and so she went out and got some, and then it became very close to home. Her father was diagnosed with cancer, and he died. So she decided that what she wanted to do is she would like to donate or commit herself as, uh, as a young lady of nine years of age that she would now run races and always get donors. And she formed a team that is called Team Winter. And in the last three years, they've raised over $100,000 for missions, I mean, for cancer research. These kids can do something. Young people can do stuff. We live in a world that sometimes we think that all of a sudden individuals, that they, they can't serve, they can't make an impact until they reach a certain age. And I'm here to tell you from the Word of God that that's just not true. God can use young people. Some of you sit in church and you say, well, church is going to be run by the adults, and that's true. It's going to be run by us. But you sit here and say, well, there's nothing I can do. That's just not true. In fact, you're the ones that we depend upon for the future. And God can use you in a mighty way. Now, those people were used in realms of science and medicine and all different types of things. But first few chapters of the book of Samuel is talking about a young man that God can use in a spiritual realm. In fact, there's that whole story that talks about this young boy who we estimate from the time that it gets into some of the details. In chapter 3, he's probably 12 years of age. And at age 12, he is all of a sudden making a huge impact, and God is using him in some phenomenal ways. In fact, if you go to that First Samuel chapter 3 and pick up in the story of his life, what happens here in First Samuel 3 is the passage starts off and it makes this comment. The child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli. That's the story continuing. And then it says, And the Lord, word of the Lord was precious in those days. The word is rare. It was something that was very novel. It wasn't very common. And there was no open vision. And then it goes on and talks about how God used a young boy to give the first vision, the first revelation that has, that has come to Israel in a long time. And then after it tells about that, it wraps up his story by saying this in verse 19. Samuel grew. The Lord was with him and did let none of his words fall to the ground. 
ground. And then it talks about where he starts ministering in Israel from Dan to Beersheba. They knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of the Lord. The Lord appeared again in Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God used this young man. The question that I have is this. What kind of young person can God use? What type of teenager can God use? What kind of young adult can God use? You look at this text, and there are several traits or qualities of young people that guarantee God will use them if they are some of these things. Ron, let's start off with this, first of all, just to give some encouragement. He's an ordinary type of person from an ordinary family. Samuel is not this one who possesses some unique, tremendous, you know, miraculous ability to go out and heal people. He's an ordinary family guy, or ordinary young teen who grows up in an ordinary family. In fact, if we back up to where we were the last couple of weeks, we talked about his family. His mom and dad were normal people. They were, whether they were farmers or businessmen, we don't know, but they were average individuals. Maybe a little bit of what we would call upper class. His dad was a Levite living in the area of Ephraim. We know as well that they were probably middle class, a little bit better family in the sense that they were able to give some, uh, some very generous offerings that we talked about in another message previous, that they were coming after their vow was made and they were ready to give Samuel to the temple service, they were supposed to bring one ox and then part of a third of an ephah of the wines and the flour. They tripled it. We read about that at the end of chapter 1. And so this family is wealthy enough that he has two wives. And so they're, they're the common middle class, a little bit above family, but they're one that had multiple kids in the home. And they're a family that had normal tensions in their home. The tensions grow in the fact that his mother couldn't have any children and her, her uh, sister wife was giving her a hassle and the husband comes and says, am I better than, than ten boys? And so there's, there's the normal pressures of family life that was happening in that day in the sense that these individuals were, were living in a time that was a rugged time, a terrible time, a time that reminds us of what's happening in the U.S. today with the lack of moralities and, and the different offgoings away from the Word of God. And, but they remained faithful to Jehovah. They were not this miraculous family that was sheltered. They were individuals that had normal life problems, and he grew up in that type of home. Kind of like what we would describe the homes that most of you grew up in. Homes that are, we would call in modern terms, Christian homes, where they believe in God, the parents are trying to, to, trying to you know, eke out the living and do what's right and live in a culture and a realm that, that you know, there's a lot of pressures. That's the type of home that he grew up in. The same type of home that most of you young people grew up in. So we know that God uses people with ordinary backgrounds. We know this. Now this is the stuff that you control. We know that he, the, God uses this young man because he had a good walk with the Lord. Now that's described in several different comments that are made. In chapter 2, verse 21, we back up a little bit. When he's talking in this text, he's going to make a comment and he's going to say about Samuel that Samuel was a child, in verse 21, that grew before the Lord. Literally, the word that he grew before the Lord in the Hebrew is he grew with the Lord. It's the idea that he is he and God are becoming friends. He and God are becoming uh, are in communion as he is working in the temple. And then in verse 26, it gives us a little bit more details about his life. It says the child Samuel grew on and was in favor both with the Lord and also with men. That is very similar to the passage in Luke chapter 2 verse 52 where it talks about Jesus growing in favor with God and man both physically and stature, socially and spiritually. It's that same description here. That same idea that he is growing in all phases of his life but especially he's pointing out that he's growing spiritually. Now look at the paragraph. Look at where it's located. 
We pointed this out last week, that in this text, he keeps on going back and forth between those who are following God and those who aren't. And so Samuel is talked about as growing with the Lord, growing before the Lord, in contrast to Hophni and Phinehas, whose story is intermixed with Samuel's. Hophni and Phinehas are those two young men who are growing away from the Lord. They have opportunity to serve. They are priests. They are in a leadership position, but they have no desire to follow the Lord. Samuel does. Even as a young lad, he has, an, he has a yearning to please God, to walk with God, to draw close to the Lord. And so he's learning this. How does he keep close to the Lord? How does he walk with him? There's a story that's told about by a preacher who relays that we came to a new ministry in a town. And when he got there... He was called after a few weeks by a lady in the church and said, would you come and visit my father? My father has reached the point in his health that he is, he is now bed-bound. He can't get out. He used to come to church. And he would enjoy a visit. And so the preacher, who's new to the community, goes over there. And when he gets to the house, the lady lets him in. And he goes to the bedroom. And there's the, the man laying in bed. And there's an empty chair right next to his bed. So he walks in. He says, hi, I guess you're expecting me. And the older man looks at me and says, no. He says, I don't know who you are. Well, he introduced himself. And he told him why he is there. And he said, well, I, I thought you were expecting me because there's this empty chair. And the old man just said, well, yeah, um, the empty chair. And the preacher was a little bit puzzled. And the old man said, close the door. Okay, so he went over and closed the door. He came back. He says, you can sit in the chair. But I've, I, I don't want my daughter to hear. She'll think I'm crazy. He goes, hear about what? Now the preacher was worried. Okay, what are you you going to tell me? And the man said, well, he said, for years and years I used to go to church and I hear messages given by preachers about praying. And he says, but I I never really felt like I could pray. I really didn't know how to do this prayer thing. And after a period of time, I just got kind of got, you know, numb to it. I'd hear about it and I'd just say, well, that's for others. They know what it is. And I never really prayed. Well, he says, one day, just a few years ago, I was telling that to my friend after decades of being a Christian. I'm talking to a friend of mine and he says, you know, you shouldn't feel that way. You can learn how to pray. He says, well, how do I do it? He said, do this. Take a chair and put the chair in front of you. An empty chair. You sit down and you talk as if Jesus is sitting in that chair. Just like the two of us are talking. You just picture Christ is here and have a conversation like you would with anybody else. And the old man went out and he said, you know, I've been trying that and been trying that. And he says, I've been doing that for the last few years. And he said, even now, he says, I, I just look so forward to that time of the day when I have this empty chair there and I, and I think of Jesus there. He says, and it's nothing for me to just talk to Jesus for two hours every day. But he said, I make sure my, I don't do it when my daughter sees because she would look and see me talking to a chair. You know, she's concerned about my well-being anyway. For sure, she'd put me away. So he says, I've never shared with her. And so the preacher thought that was pretty cool. He encouraged him to continue to do that. And he went, you know, they had a good visit, prayed together, went away. And it was a few days later that he got a phone call from the daughter saying that the old man had passed away during, the night, during, during that afternoon. And so the preacher went by and he was ministering to the lady and trying to encourage. And she was just saying, yeah, she says, I was talking to dad, telling him I'm going to go to the store. And uh, he called me in there and he told me one of his corny jokes. And then he told me he loved me and he said he wanted to give me a kiss. So we did that, and she says, I left for just a couple hours, and when I came back, he was gone. She says, I didn't expect it. It was very sudden. You know, I knew sometime it would come, but all of a sudden he was gone. And the preacher said, well, you know, I'm sure he had peace with the Lord. And she says, yeah, but the funniest thing. It's just the oddest thing. I don't know what happened. You know, he must have been trying to get out of bed. And he says, well, why is that? She says, well, when I came into the room, 
He had this smile on his face and looked really peaceful, but he wasn't sitting totally on the bed anymore. He had his head laying in the lap of the chair. You know, simple things we can do to learn to pray. Praying isn't just limited to older people. It's something that even teens and young adults should be and learning to foster to do. To just pray and pray. Well, Samuel did that. He has this walk with the Lord, this closeness with the Lord. He was also committed to God. Very committed. How do I know that? Because we read about in things like this in chapter 2, verse 11. It talks about the child did minister unto the Lord before Eli, uh, the high priest. In fact, it's repeated. He wants us to understand in verse 18 the same thing. But in between, we have the story of Hophni and Phinehas, who were not committed to the Lord, who instead were, were taking from the people the meats and the offerings that weren't supposed to be taken by them. They were taking the fat, which none of the Jews, by the way, just to, if you weren't here last Sunday night, just to remind you that the Jews were not to eat the blood of an animal and they were not to eat the fat of an animal. If you do that, it was punishable by death. And here in the middle of this phrase, where it says in verse 11 and verse 18, that Samuel ministered unto the Lord. You have the story of Hophni and Phinehas working in their Old Testament church, the tabernacle, and fleecing the flock, taking for themselves. And so God wants us to understand that this guy, this young man was committed. Now we understand that even as a young child, his mom took him to the tabernacle. She said he is going to be dedicated to staying here, living here, and living as a Nazarite. He's going to keep himself pure. He's going to not even do the normal things of life, like the wines. He's not going to do the normal things of life, such as cutting your hair. He was going to stand out as one dedicated to the Lord. The way Hophni and Phinehas should have been standing out as priests, as individuals who were dedicated to the Lord. Samuel, as he grows up, maintains that. He is ministering. He is committed to serve. He's one that is still there, working there. In fact, the Hebrew language, when it says that he is serving before the Lord, that where it makes that comment two times, it is in such a phrase that it says, he had been and continues to serve. This was his lifestyle. As a young person, as a teen, he was actively involved in serving before the Lord, totally, totally opposite of the others. He had learned to dedicate himself to the Lord. Now think this through with me. This individual he says, I'm going to serve God. He wasn't serving Eli. Now he ministers to Eli, but his goal is not to serve the priest or the Eli. It says he's ministering before the Lord. And that's a highlight that he's doing this not to please the adults. He's doing this to please his God. And as I think about his dedication, he is keeping himself pure. Even as a young man, as a teenager, keeping himself pure in an opportune moment where he could have gone off into impurity. His was a little bit different than Joseph of the Old Testament. His wasn't as blatant. Or maybe it was. Do you remember Joseph of the Old Testament? He's sold into slavery. He ends up down in Egypt. And he's, as a young man, given the opportunity by Potiphar's wife to develop an, an, an illicit relationship with her. But he refuses. He runs out of the room. Gets in trouble for running out of the room. And so he had, he had that, that virtue, he had that quality to say, I'm going to be committed to the Lord even though there's no family nearby. Even though there's not others watching me and, and I could get away with this, I'm going to be committed to the Lord. Same with Samuel. Samuel's at the tabernacle. His parents don't live there. He's there. It's Eli is there, but Eli is turning a blind eye and a blind ear to all the immorality. Look at the passage. It talks about in chapter 2 further on, I think it's about verse 24, it talks about 
about the idea, I'm sorry, it's verse 22. It talks about Hophni and Phinehas not only fleecing the flock, but taking advantage of the ladies who come to worship. And they are, they are involved in illicit, lustful activities. But Samuel doesn't. Samuel, as a young man, is keeping himself away from that. The general population has, got, has drifted away. That's the book of Judges. They're not following the Lord. But Samuel is following the Lord. These other guys are serving in the tabernacle to make themselves fat and wealthy from the offerings that the people would be be bringing. But not Samuel. He is dedicated serving to the Lord. In fact, he doesn't give in to the peer pressure that Hophni and Phinehas are putting upon the others. I don't know if you saw this when we looked at it last week. But jump down in chapter 2 and watch what happens here. It says in verse 11, or verse 12, the sons of Eli were men's, uh, were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Watch what it talks about. The priest's custom with the people was that if any man brings in a sacrifice, the priest servant came with the flesh, the three-tongued item, and put it in the flesh hook and pull out whatever they wanted. That was not, according to Leviticus, that was not right. They were supposed to only get the thigh and the breast. But they were taking whatever they wanted and they put it in while the stuff was cooking, not waiting until afterwards. And it's talked about that. And then it talks in verse 15 about the fat. The fat that was supposed to be burnt, given to the Lord, as they considered in Bible days that was the best part of the animal. They, they said, we'll give that to God. And God demanded that, that nobody eats it. And it says this. Look at verse 15. Then, and also they burnt the fat. The pre, before they burnt it, the priest's servants would come and say to the men that sacrifice, give flesh to roast for the priest. He will not have this uncooked flesh. And if any man said no, okay, they need to burn the fat. Then, then you can take whatever you want after that. Then he, that is the servant of the priest, would answer, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great. It describes something here. It describes Hophni and Phinehas getting the other priests involved with their sin. That Hophni and Phinehas got their own servants to do whatever they wanted by fleecing the flock. Samuel's there. Samuel's a part of this servants at the temple. He's part of that, that group, but he refuses and does not get involved. And very clearly, he stands out from the peer pressure that is given by Hophni and Phinehas upon those who are involved in the tabernacle to take advantage of the people. Samuel's not. He's serving the Lord. He's committed to the Lord. He's doing that which is right. There's an old story that comes out of Russia in Eastern Europe, that's talking about this idea of giving in to peer pressure. And the story goes something about this spider having this nest, and he keeps it clean from all the bugs so that he can attract a new bug to, to feast upon. And this fly comes flying by, and he doesn't see any other bug, and he's attracted. And he's going to go towards that, that spider web, but then he backs away, and he sees on the floor, there's this brown paper, and there's hundreds of flies dancing around on that brown paper on the floor. And he looks and says, huh, that's where everybody else is at. And the spider speaks up and invites him, no, come, come here. He says, no, no, all my friends are down there. So he starts flying down there and a bee comes by. And the bee comes by and says, you don't want to go down there. That's flypaper. You go down there and you're going to be, you know, you're going to be done. And the fly says, no, all my friends are down there and they're dancing, dancing, dancing. And obviously he goes down there, gets on the flypaper. And the whole gist of the story is don't follow the crowd. 
It doesn't always work. They've done studies about people following crowds and people giving in to peer pressure. There's a, there's a psychologist that did a whole study through several schools in one of our major metropolitan areas a few years ago. And what they did is they wanted to see how many young people give in to peer pressure. So they divided a lot of the student body up into groups of 10. And what they would do is they would take them in 10 at a time and on the board they, they would have different, different uh, multiple different segments where they would throw, show three lines. And then they would say, okay, we're going to have the teacher point out to the longest line of these three. And when they point, you're supposed to raise your hand and say, that's the longest line. And they would have these people go in in groups of ten, and they would show multiple different sets of these three lines. But they did this in an experiment that it was, that it was set up this way, that they would tell nine of them before they go in, to always raise your hand when the teacher points to the second longest line. Because they wanted to see what would peer pressure do to that one person. Would they go along with the group, or would they not go with the group? And so they did this test after test after test with hundreds of young people, and they found out that 70% of those who went into the test would always vote with the group, even if they knew the line was not the longest. Peer pressure was amazing. So another guy built a, a whole, he, he, de- he deals with um, commercials and marketing type thing. And so he always, in his books, he refers to people are being like birds or termites. You know how this happens? Uh, we see it out here oftentimes. Well, all of a sudden, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we had, a, we had the field was covered with white, ge- uh, white geese out here. And it's amazing. Somebody comes by with one car, you know, comes by, they hear the noise, and one bird takes off. As soon as one bird takes off, they all take off, and then they'll swoop around for a bit, and then they'll land. And then all of a sudden, one will take off, and it's like, okay, fire drill. Everybody goes up, swoops around, and comes back down. And he says that's the way people are. So what he wanted to test was how do people respond when they're in a group setting, groups that could be 20, they could be 100. And so they had a facility set aside, and they would take groups uh, of different sizes, and they would put them in this building, kind of like our building, and they would just say, you know, you need to kind of figure your way where you're supposed to go in this building. They wouldn't give them anything. And they would always tell five people, five people, walk this way in this direction as if you know where you're going. You just, you know. And so they'd get there and they, they tested all these people and observed through cameras that it happened. It happened over 90% of the time. Everyone would follow the five who acted as if they knew where they were going. The whole idea is people follow crowds. Well, in the passage that we're talking about, we're, we're highlighting the idea that Samuel didn't follow the crowd. He said, I'm committed to God. I'm going to serve the Lord. I don't care what the friends do. I don't care what the, the priests around me are doing. I don't care what the society is doing. I am going to do what's right before God, even if others don't agree. And so he stood up for the Lord. He's ministering before the Lord. No wonder God was able to use that. Use him in that great way. Let me point out something else about his life. He was an individual who did the tough task, the tough jobs that God gave. Looking at the text, now we're in chapter 3. God gives him special revelation. This is the first time, as we already pointed out, that there's been revelation in a long time. It's very rare. In the revelation, God is going to give him a message that has to do with his boss, Eli. And God's going to be very blunt. In fact, by the time the message is over, Samuel doesn't want to even share the message because he fears 
that this message is, well, he knows this message is a harsh message. It's one of judgment. Because Eli did not stop his sons from doing evil and allowed them to rip off the people, to take advantage of the ladies in worship, to push people away from worship, God says to Samuel, Samuel, here's a vision. Now watch how it unfolds. Chapter 3. It says, it came to pass at that time, verse 2, that Eli was laid down in his place. His eyes began to wax dim. He could not see. He's an old man. And the, and the lamp of the Lord went out in the temple of the Lord. So it's late at night. The oil has run out and where the ark of the Lord was. And Samuel was laid down to sleep. The Lord called Samuel and he said, here am I. Uh, and so he got up, he ran to Eli and said, here am I, you called me. And Eli, the old man said, I didn't call you, go back to bed. And he went and laid down. The Lord called yet again to Samuel. And Samuel got up out of his bed and went to Eli and said, here I am, you did call me. And the old man says, I didn't call you, my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know that the Lord was speaking to him, neither was the word of the Lord yet revealed unto him. This is the first time. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. He got up out of bed and went to Eli's room and said, Here am I, you did call me. And Eli perceived that it was the Lord that was calling him. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and it shall be if he calls you again that you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his bed again. The Lord came, by the way, look at verse 10, just, just as, a, as a simple thought. The Lord came and did what? Okay, this is Christ appearing in the Old Testament. So he's going to have this, this actual God appearing to him. It says, The Lord came and stood and called at his other time, Samuel, Samuel. Samuel answered and said, Speak, for your servant hears. The Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I will do a thing in Israel at which it, it's, it's going to be so amazing, the ears of everyone that hears it, it's going to tingle. It's going to catch everybody off guard. In that day I will perform against Eli all the things which I have spoken concerning his house. When I begin, I, I'm not going to stop until it's over with. For I have told him that I will judge his house forever because of the iniquity that he knew about by his boys, and he, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not stop them. He restrained them not. And therefore I have sworn unto the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be purged with sacrifice nor offerings. No matter what a bullock, no matter what, what he does for a sacrifice, it's too late. He's gone too far. He's let it go too long. Samuel lay until the morning. He opened the doors of the house. This must have been his job, opening up the tabernacle, unlocking things, turning on the lights. And Samuel feared to show Eli the vision. Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son, he said, here am I. He said, what is the thing that the Lord said unto you last night? I pray thee, hide it not from me. God do so to you and more also, if you hide any of it from me, of all the things that he said. Now remember, he hasn't gotten a vision. It's been rare. And he knows that this boy is getting some communication from God. Please tell me the communication, no matter what it is. But the boy has been hesitant to tell him because the nature of the message is against Eli. And Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And Eli says, it's the Lord. Let him do what seems good. I think that phrase in verse 18 where it says, Samuel told him every bit of it. That's an amazing phrase considering he didn't want to. He feared to tell him. Because of the very nature of what was going to be said, he, he was apprehensive to tell him. Why would he do that? Why would, he, why would this be so hard for him to do? Well, well think about it. It's, it's a message of judgment. It's a message of saying to him, your boys are going to die. 
They're going to be judged. Their sin is, is, is just obnoxious in the sight of God. And, and, and God hates it. And, and God's going to judge your boys. You want to tell that to somebody? I mean, seriously. Do you thrill to tell somebody, if you don't get saved, you're going to go to hell and you're going to burn forever? That's a tough message to tell. It's a difficult message to say to somebody, if you don't repent of your sin, there's chastisement. It's difficult to tell somebody, what you're doing is evil, is wrong. They're going to say to you, who are you to judge me? This is tough for a 12, 13-year-old boy to say this message to somebody that has been his mentor. He has lived with this man now for the last few years. This is his boss. This is the individual who's been teaching him and training him for ministry. And now he has to tell him, God is judging your house because you failed to be committed to the Lord. And we talked about it last Sunday night. The commitment includes that Eli even got involved with some of it. That he made himself fat with some of it. And some of the, what they took. And so Eli had not remained as committed as he should, and God's judging him for it. And he says, Samuel, you got to tell him the judgment is coming. Samuel does. Now Samuel, Samuel cares for Eli. How do I know that? He hears a voice saying, you know, Samuel, Samuel, and he runs in. He runs in and says, I, I, I want to serve you. What can I do for you? So he's hesitant. But he does the tough task. He does what God has told him to do, even though it's going to be difficult. You know, there's a lot of tough tasks that we get given. And sometimes we want, to, we want to shy away from some of those tough things that God asks us to do. Sometimes we say, well, I'll do that when I'm older. I don't need to do that now. Wait a minute. If God has given us a job to do, we need to do it no matter what. There's a hero in Roman society. They call him Regulus. He's a hero in some of their, their ancient tales because of his commitment to doing what needs to be done. He was a general who led the Roman armies against Carthage. Carthage was a city rival that was located in North Africa. And in the early growings of the Roman Empire, they were constant enemies for a number of years. And so Carthage is the one who, they fostered Hannibal and going through the Alps and things of that sort. So they were mortal enemies against each other. Regulus was there in North Africa leading his armies. They had some victories, but he lost one battle, got captured. He was taken to Carthage and held in prison for a period of time. Now, they knew he was an honest man. And so they wanted, they, the Carthaginians knew that they were losing ground against the Romans, but they could hold out for a few more years. They went to Regulus and they said, hey, tell you what, we would like you to do something. We will free you if you go back to Rome and you deliver a message for us. If the Romans... If the Romans decide they're going to stop the war, you can stay in Rome. But you must promise that if the Romans continue to fight the war, that you will come back of your own accord and put yourself back in prison. This man gave his word. He gave his word. It's going to be his means, many thought, of getting, getting out of there. But the, the people knew his reputation of his honesty. And so they said, you know, uh, we'll let you go. So he goes to Rome and he delivered the message. He says to the Senate, he says, here's the message from the Carthaginians. They wanted me to tell you that they have endless supplies, endless number of young men. They can continue this for decades, and they're just going to wear you out. Well, the senators of Rome said, well, what do you think? Is that true? He says, no. From everything that I saw and heard, they are absolutely losing this war. They are, they are losing numbers of men. They can't keep this up. They're already hiring other nations to do the fight. 
fighting for them. It, press the battle, press the battle, and we're going to win within a few years. But if we press the battle, what about you? He says, I have to go back. I gave them my word. And they said, no, 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 no. You stay here. You're a hero. You stay here. He says, no, I gave them my word. What about your wife and your children? He says, they know that I gave my word. And I'm going to go back because I gave them my word. And, I, and they said, but yeah, but we could use you here. He said, you're asking me, a representative of the Roman culture, to all of a sudden be dishonest and not fulfill a commitment I made? says, I thought our, our country was built on commitment and character. He goes back to Carthage of his own accord. He goes back. He reports that Rome's going to continue the battle. They put him in prison. They torture him to death over the next couple of years. But he becomes an iconic figure of an individual who says, this I gave my word, I made a commitment, and I will do it even if it costs me my life. I'm going to follow through with commitment. And he's one of those, those characters that you read about that they, that they used in their society to build this type of commitment to their society. That's the type of commitment we need to the Lord Jesus Christ. That somebody says, I will do what God wants me to do even if it's difficult. I will make a commitment to Christ and I will follow through. I will study my Bible. I will pray. I will follow the Lord in baptism. I will share God's word. I will get involved with serving and doing what's right. I will reach out to others. I will befriend others. I will forgive. You make that commitment sometimes here when you sit in worship and you hear messages. It's the test of what do you do when you leave? How do you live? Do you live by saying, this is the character of born-again Christians? They carry through with their commitments to Christ. That's the type of people that God uses. It can be done by a young man, somebody like Samuel, who says, I will do what God wants me to do, even if there's pressure, even if it's a harsh message, even if it's not popular. I'm going to do what God wants. And he does it with love and compassion. I already pointed out how he is caring for somebody. He is so concerned in this sense that it says that when Eli, he thought Eli called, look at the wording, he ran to Eli's bed. He was anxious to go and minister and to, to assist this man. Now think this through. Eli's an old man. Eli's an individual. It's in the middle of the night and most of us don't want to run anywhere in the middle of the night. He gets up and he goes to this old man, not just once, but twice. Not just twice, but three times. Most of us, if we were bothered by an old person that much, we'd put him in a rest home so somebody else can watch him. Eli says, I'm sorry, Samuel is the type of person that he cares. He's concerned about ministering to other people. It's not about just his own sleep, his own rest, his own bother. And he tells enough, cares enough to, he says, hey, listen, you know, I'm apprehensive to tell you this because it's going to break your heart. He cares. He's very concerned. And yet, here's an individual that God can use. What kind of person does he use? He uses an individual who relies upon the Lord. The young person, this is where Samuel had to learn this. If you jump down, and we read it already, down in verse 19, it talks about Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and did, not, did let none of his words fall to the ground. That is a passage that is very profound. Because if you remember from the Old Testament, where it talks about the words of the prophet, how do you know if a prophet is from God? 
How do you know that? Well, according to Deuteronomy 18, God has to vindicate the prophet. He will let us know if this guy is really his true prophet by fulfilling the words, by making it come to pass. The point of this text is this. God confirmed. God attested to Samuel. Samuel doesn't stand up and say, Hey, listen to me. I'm a prophet. God, listen to me. He just gives out the word. He just shares the vision God gives, and he has to rely upon the Lord to bring it to pass. He can't make it come to happen. He just relays and then relies. He relays and relies. And it says in this text that God did that. God did authenticate. God did attest to the fact that this is somebody that I have sent. He had to learn in his ministry just to rely. Just to realize. I do what I can, but I need to rely upon the Lord. I do what I can, but I need to rely. In fact, when he gave Eli the message, even though he was a little bit apprehensive to give it to the man that he cared about, He says, I have to give the message and rely upon God to take care of Eli. To see Eli through this this message, to, to deal with Eli's heart. He just has to rely upon the Lord. Now, he's not the only person who did this. He's not the only young person who learned to just rely upon the Lord and rely upon the Lord, rely upon the Lord. You go through the Bible and you get a lot of these guys. You get individuals, like I mentioned, Joseph in the Old Testament, cast away by his brothers down in Egypt. He just has to rely upon the Lord. There's nobody else. He has to rely upon the Lord to do what's right and say no to Potiphar's wife. He has to rely upon the Lord that when he is, when he is given visions and to be able to explain, he has to rely upon the Lord to tell and let, let whatever happens. And he ends up staying in prison even longer because they forget about him. He has to stand before Pharaoh and give a message of doom that's coming. But he has to rely upon the Lord. He has to rely upon the Lord that all of a sudden, as he says, let's put together this plan of trying to salvage uh, the whole nation of of Egypt, that is, to salvage them through the seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. He has to rely upon the Lord. You've got stories of individuals like Miriam whose mom says, help us take care of Moses. I'm going to put him in this reed, you watch, and when the, when the princess comes, you do, you know, do a sales pitch to see if that we can come and minister to him. And Miriam, just at the age of 10 or so, she has to rely upon the Lord. Rely upon the Lord while she sits there and watches in, in, in the reeds and bulrushes. That no animal takes him. That he's going to be founded. She has to rely upon the Lord. You have instances of David. What greater story of going into battle as a teenager and relying upon the Lord. Now you and I, we would, we would you know, eh, this would be great if we knew the outcome and if we had a tank. We'd gladly go against him. But David relying upon the Lord and saying, I'm committed to the Lord. I'm going to do what's right. He runs headlong into the battle. In fact, he is so confident in relying upon the Lord that he picks up five rocks. Not because he's a bad shot, but Saul, or Goliath, has four brothers. You have stories about Josiah. At eight years of age, becomes the king. When he is right around 14 years of age, he brings revival. How does he do that? Bring the Word of God. Let's listen to the Word of God. Let's do what the Word of God says. They read the Bible. He says, we got to follow this. we got to do what God says. I don't care what the, what the politicians say. Let's do what God says. Let's get rid of the pagan idols. And as a young king, he is relying upon the Lord. You have stories about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel. That they're told, eat this food because this is the food that is going to, you know, be, uh, be, it's from the king's table. And they say, no, it's not kosher food. It's not that the food is, is not good for you. It's this is not Jewish food. We have a law that says we can only eat certain foods. We cannot eat that food. And we have to rely upon the Lord. We're, in fact, do this. 
Give us our food that helps us to follow and then test and see how, how we look compared to the other guys. And we're going to rely upon the Lord. And God uses him. God elevates them in the sight of the king. So they become a mouthpiece for the Lord. they got to rely upon the Lord when they're tested. You know, bow down before the idol. If you don't bow down, you're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. And they make the comment, whether we burn or not, we cannot disobey God. We just have to trust the Lord. They get cast into the fire, and the, and the king says, I see four. Didn't we throw in three? It's the Son of God walking with them. We have stories in the New Testament about a lad with just a little. But he comes and he guy and he, Jesus says, can we have the lunch? He gives it to Jesus. And Jesus uses him because he's one who cares. He's one who is committed. He's one who is relying upon the Lord. Here's the bottom line. Here's where we wrap up and say, okay, what's this teach us? God is not reluctant or afraid to trust in using young people. God does not have an age limit. I can't trust. I can't, can't use somebody under age 16. That's just not true. God uses young people of all ages. He wants to employ them. You're his children. He wants to use you. He wants you to make an impact upon individuals. In fact, he did it many times in the Bible. He uses youth to bring about revival. You just need to make sure you're doing your part. That you as a young person are doing what Samuel did. Have that walk, that commitment. Do what God asks you to do, even though it's tough. Genuinely be concerned. Rely upon the Lord, and God will use you. God will do some great things through you if you just realize your God wants to use you. Or are you reluctant? Are you afraid of God using you? Are you afraid he's going to take something and you're going to miss out on something? Miss out on being used by God? Miss out on eternal rewards? Miss out on seeing somebody get saved? Miss out on making an impact in somebody's life? There's a story told by a, by a child's pediatrician, a born-again man, who in the Midwest, he said that in his church, his wife was teaching one Sunday, and she was teaching the young people, an elementary class in the church of about sixth graders. And she's saying, you can be used by God, you can be used by God, you should do some things. And one of the little girls said, well, what can we do in church? The woman thought for a moment, she says, hey, listen, there was an announcement in the bulletin about putting flowers up at the front of the church, that they wanted them because they were a nice thing and they encouraged people. And the girl said, well, I wanted to do something important. And the doctor's wife said, well, this is important. It's a ministry. It's something you can do, and you can grow into another ministry. So the little girl took it upon herself, and often she would pick her own flowers. So quite frequently, they'd end up with dandelions that would be there in front of, in front of the church. Well, the pastor got wind of what was going on and how this little girl for the last few weeks has been so faithful getting the dandelions there every week. And people were commenting and smiling and saying, it's, you know, that's cool. He used it as an illustration about being willing to do something. Well, that made a difference in some people's lives. This little girl, by her simple illustration, motivated others to say, we can get involved. We can do something. And they, they saw some growth happening in the church because people were getting involved by that little girl's example. Then the doctor said we, something tragic happened. He said the little girl was becoming lethargic and not doing so well. And he said so. They were, he was their pediatrician. They brought him in and he said it was the worst thing I had to do. I had to go to the parents and say your daughter has a terminal case of leukemia. He said I had to sit down and I had to tell them. I had to explain that it's going to be this length of time probably and here's what's going to happen. And he said over the next few months... You know, they would come, the little girl still faithfully put her flower in her dandelions. But then she came to a point where she couldn't do it anymore. And so she was at home, and he said, he remembers visiting her when mom called and said she's really sick. He got there, and he said, it's just a matter of a couple, a few days. She's not, she's, she's 
terminal. So he said, I'm sitting the following Sunday in church, and I'm sitting there, and he says, I'm not getting anything out of the message. I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about this family, what they're going through, how probably this week they're going to have to bury their little girl. And he says, it's just nothing, nothing in the service was clicking for me. I was just so distracted. And all of a sudden, he said, the pastor's preaching, and the pastor stopped and just looked. He kept on staring until everybody turned around, and there in the back of the auditorium, in walked mom and dad with a little girl wrapped in a blanket. They had joined them for worship. They hadn't been able to do that for weeks. And he said, and then the little girl got down, and the little girl wobbled her way by herself all the way to the front, and guess what she had in her hand? She had her dandelions. She put them in the, the vase that was empty, and she waddled back to her her seat where her parents were and collapsed in their arms. The church stopped the service and everybody was gathered around loving on them because of what they were going through. But he said, two days later, the little girl passed away. He said, I, that service, just seeing that little girl, he said, and her wanting to make sure there was flowers up there, that it was something she could do. He said, that just absolutely impacted him. He said, then he gets to the funeral service they have the service. They're gathering with the family afterwards. And the pastor says, here, I want you to read this letter. You see, when the little girl came forward and put the flowers, she also put a note up front. And he said, I want you to see what this little girl wrote. The doctor opened it up and it says, dear God, thank you for the opportunity to put flowers. It is the best job anyone ever had. Can kids make a difference? In that church, she did. That revived that entire church. Can you make a difference in our church, young person? By you saying, I will minister. I will do something. I will get other teens together and we will minister to somebody. We will, we will reach out. We will go and give some tracts out. We will, we will try to go to a rest home and, and to give out the word through song. We will do a ministry. I will be willing to teach and make a difference. God can use you. God can create revival through you. If you, even as a young person, are willing to say, here am I, Lord. Here am I. We talk about these heroic kids getting rewards for doing these phenomenal things with uh, medicine and science. Why can't we have some stories of Christian kids making a difference? Of you teens really making an impact for Christ? He wants to use you. You just have to say, here am I. Here am I, Lord. Here am I, use me. Let me be an individual that is motivated and used by the Lord. Let's sing together as we close out our worship this day. Lord, I give myself to you. Here am I, Lord. Send me. Lord, I give my life to you. Take control each day. I will follow anywhere, near or far away. Here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. I will serve you faithfully. Here am I, Lord, said. It's so easy, so easy to sing the words. It's so easy to say them. 
Do you mean it? Do you mean it? Lord, I want to be used. Lord, here I am. Use me this missions conference. Use me in some way, God. Here am I. Use me on the mission field. Here am I. Use me through sacrificial Sunday. Here am I. Use me as a witness to the classmates, my co-workers. Use me. Here am I. I'm young. I'm still young in my mind. I've got great grandkids, but I'm still young in my mind. Lord, here am I. It's one thing to say the words. It's another one to mean it. Lord, I want your perfect will. Be my faithful guide. I will never be afraid. You are close beside. Here am I, Lord, send me. Here am I, Lord, send me. I will serve you faithfully. Here am I, Lord, send me.